Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is... Kerry C., welcome to the show. So pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me along. You won't be saying that in five minutes, I assure you. <laughs> it's all going downhill from here. You were it's just started, started, it started averagely and then sort of tailed off after that. So Yeah, yeah. I've, your reputation precedes you. I've heard this about you. So t- tell us a bit about yourselves, Carrie. Uh, well, depending what angle you want to take, I mean, life is stories, isn't it? And I can tell you my story from some victim mentality, or I could tell you my story as a hero's journey. Which would you prefer? Whichever you, whichever you're happy to share. <laughs> I, I would say from from the outs, from uh, sort of not knowing much about your background, I think it would be useful just to, for you to tell us a bit about your story that lets us know what brought you to this moment in time and your interest in different, you know, in the markets and in Bitcoin itself. Lovely. Well, there's a biggish story to that. So I'm going to start with my upbringing and my values, and then I'm going to move on to my a potted history of my career. So the background story is relevant in as much as I was born in England, actually. My mother is English and my father is Australian. He moved to England for six months and stayed for 22 years and met my mother and had me. Uh, Mum was brought up during the war years there and she was sort of five or six years old being bombed in London and she had two brothers 10 years older than her fighting in the war. She's Jewish. Uh, The family is Jewish and so she had cousins in concentration camp as well. So all of that very much affected her mentality throughout her life and she was very strong on financial independence and she became a gold bug understanding she got a very she had a very strategic mind very big picture analytical mind and she delved deeply into geopolitics and I was brought up on this stuff and so conversations around the kitchen table weren't like how was your day at school dear conversations around the table were about the fall of the Roman Empire and Western civilization following in its footsteps and you've got to be tough and you need to own gold. So all of that is to say that my values were shaped by freedom, uh, the need for freedom, being brought up on stories of the Holocaust at a very young age made me feel very, uh, Never, I never felt safe in the world. And there was always that sense that when times turn bad, Jews will be blamed. And so, and times are about to turn bad. So that's how all of that story tied together for me. I, strangely enough, moved into, well, maybe not strangely enough at all, because my mum had talked about investments over the years, my starting point in my career was in stockbroking. So I worked, I'd actually started in Australia and I moved, oh no, I didn't actually, sorry, I'm, I'm actually getting a piece of my story wrong. I moved back to London. So we'd moved back to Australia when I was maybe nine years old. So I did all my schooling and university here. And then I came back to London to visit my cousins over there when I was in my early 20s. And 
I was looking for a temp job and I picked up a temp job in stockbroking and it was with an Australian bank, but the treasury operation of an Australian bank in London. Uh, Just a funny little story there. I ended up with National Australia Bank, which at the time was being run by Nobby Clark. And he also bought out uh, at around that time, the National Irish Bank. So we had the nib and the nab run by the knob. So that was my time. In, and it was all around the time of the 87 crash. That's what was going on. And so I saw at close quarters all of that unravelling and what was kind of going on in the financial markets at the time and everything that my mother had talked about in terms of debt levels, um, playing out in real time, except, of course, what none of us could have anticipated, I don't think, is the degree to which the governments could kick the can down the road for decades, decades to come. And so whilst all of that was an indicator of what was to come in 1987, what we then saw saw play out in 2008 and 2009 and, and imagining that was going to be the end of the world, and then we had 2018, and so it goes on. And the capacity to print money is never ending. But that set me up. Therefore, I was going to say but and and say there will be, you know, at some point a catastrophic meltdown. But leaving that aside, what all of that did was set me up that when I saw Bitcoin and I started to understand the value proposition once I got past, it's all a scam and it's all a Ponzi and all the things that we all first hear and imagine when we stumble across Bitcoin and we're full of suspicion and misunderstanding. I was very well placed once I started to understand a little bit about the technology, a little bit about the uh, store of value, but also its capacity as a freedom technology. So there's a savings capacity in the face of hyperinflation, but there's also freedom capacity. And all of that ties into my need and deep valuing of freedom that came from my childhood, but also then my understanding of hyperinflation and debt and the need for finite supply, hard money. So I think that gets us up to date to where we are today in September 23. Just before we dive into the 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 the, the currency aspect of this and the you know the, the, the day-to-day stuff, on passant you referred to talking about the the decline of the Roman Empire. Without wishing to put you on the spot, what's your take on how that why the Roman Empire actually collapsed? If that's not an unfair question, so I can give you my take, but I'd like to hear yours first. I. I think there's two parts to that. I, I'm i not an expert, uh, so so I'm not going to answer this well. I mean, according but, to historians, apparently it's, it's a bit like economics. And if you ask 10 historians that you'll get 20 answers anyway, so that's why it <laughs> fails. It sounds like a Jewish Shabbat dinner on a Friday night. Um, so I... Clearly, there's there's certain cycles for empires. And once there's an element of 
wealth and comfort and ease and nobody is having to fight anymore. I mean, there's that intergenerational piece of uh, uh, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create Bad times. Strong times create weak men. Weak men create bad times. Bad times create strong strong men. So there we go. So there's that cycle playing out uh, en masse over a period of time. And then you've also got these um, – what also happened as part of that is my understanding is very much what we're seeing today with the debasement of the currency, which is that the Roman – um, you know, government of the time started to debase the currency. So they had issued gold coins uh, with, you know, whoever's face on whichever side of the coin. And they started to mix it, is my understanding. I'd be really interested in your take on this, such that it weakened the value of the coin, and and the way I think they un, they did that was they mixed metals, so it was no longer pure gold, and it went from something like ninety five percent gold down to something close to five percent gold. I'm I think that's the story I've read relatively recently about that. What's your take on it? I mean, I haven't studied it uh, in any length, but I'd, I'd very much like to because I think I think my my take on the financial markets is that if I hadn't, I mean, I read English at university, so I'm uniquely ill qualified to talk about global capital flows and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Nevertheless, if I'd had my time again and got a sort of glimpse that I was going to work in the city, I would probably have chosen history as a subject instead, or failing that psychology. So I find the, the whole nature of financial history is, is really quite is really quite fascinating. Anyhow, to, so to go back to this original topic, my take for what it's worth is exactly as you said that basically the empire was was in overreach. Yes, that they had they basically could no longer afford the upkeep of the military in so many stations abroad. They 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 weakened they they deliberately um, devalued the currency. I think it was the denarius. Right. And the the key the key moment for me because there's a book called Forty Centuries of Wage and Price Controls which you can get for free as a PDF from the Mises website and it basically is is a the the, the clue is in the title four thousand years of basically governments screwing up because they always do and so the the my my sort of glimpse account of why why the Roman Empire failed is basically can be summed up in the story of the Edict of Diocletian. And if you're not familiar with the Edict of Diocletian, this was he was an emperor that was sort of, you know, parachuted in to try and deal with all these problems, imperial overreach, military overspend, rocketing inflation, rocketing food prices. And he issued this edict that basically said, amongst other things, grain prices will not rise on pain of death. And guess what happened to grain prices? They still went up. And he devalued the denarius. And there was a, basically a, effectively a hyperinflationary kind of problem. And that basically marked, let's say, the by that stage, it was clear that the, that the the empire was coming off the rails. And the reason I ask this, the reason I labour this point, is because the idea of military overreach, massive inflation, government out of control, sounds suspiciously similar to what we're now experiencing with the U.S. empire. It really does. And funnily enough, I I was thinking military overreach was part of the problem as well. And it is what we're facing today. But empires take a very long time to unravel. 
Uh, and and it could be as something as simple as Russia, which took kind of sixty years in the in the downfall, through to you know hundred years or five hundred years in the making. It can be a, it's a long time that these things take to play out. And as Greg Foss would say, a well known bond trader or ex bond trader in the uh, in the Bitcoin industry now. Uh, you know, the US dollar at the end of the day is still the strongest currency on earth. People aren't going to give it up in a hurry. Smart people you and I talk to every day of the week still uh, don't get Bitcoin and poo-poo it as, as a kind of relevant anything. And uh, we'll continue to use US dollar. And Greg Foss talks about it as being the strongest horse in the glue factory. Mm-hmm. It can stick around and these things can take a long time to play out. I remember reading a book when I was back in financial markets, and this might have been in the early 1990s, but it had been written sometime before, maybe in the mid 80s. And it was called The Great Reckoning by uh, James Dale Davidson and William Rees Mogg. And they saw all of this coming. And they wrote that in 1985, and here we are in 2023, and and this is still playing out. So it it takes a long time. And I'm also reading Atlas Shrugged at the moment, and I'm embarrassed to say that I've never read it previously. And having moved into this space, there's such a backlog of books like the, the von Mises books you've just talked about, but there's such a great wealth of historical books as well as new books coming out all the time that I'm trying to sort of catch up on and make my way through. But to see, I'm just at the point in Atlas Shrugged where they're fundamentally imposing, for want of a better word, full-bent socialism or communism and trying to restrict those prices and trying to um, put a lid on everything and freeze everything and take control of everything, et cetera, et cetera. And it's what I love about it being in novel form is that you can see years pass and get a bird's eye view of the unraveling of the society and the poverty and the starvation and the second order effects and the third order effects. Uh, And you can see it play out in a number of pages or, you know, a hundred pages at a time. And you can certainly see that's where it's headed. And yet the timing is a strange thing. You know, certainly you would imagine that what we've just seen with lockdowns and the money printing through lockdowns, you would imagine that's a big piece to crunch us to the next level of kind of of unravelling but and yet here we are everyone's just plodding along and thinks life is continuing as usual even though prices are up and everybody's grumbling we're nowhere near that sort of hyperinflationary complete debasement of civilization you mentioned lockdown. I mean, uh, this is a question we were going to ask anyway, but you, you brought it up now. I mean, w- what was your experience of the of the of the counter COVID uh, culture in uh, in Melbourne? Huh. Uh, well, look, as the lockdown capital of the world, there was a uh, it was a very divided society. So my experience of it would be very. If you asked any one of my friends, their experience would be different. 
And I, in fact, lost friends along the way because my experience of it was I was impacted twofold. I have traditionally run presentation skills training and influencing skills training and difficult conversations training for, for businesses. So I've been in that business communication space. And that was fine. I shifted to online. And for the first year, year and a half, that was great, actually. But then what happened was we would open up again and clients would say, well, look, it's been good online, but we wouldn't mind doing it live. It's clearly better. We get better results live. So let's do live. And so we would schedule that and then we would lock down again. And then of course, we would open up and we'd reschedule and we would lock down again. So it was really the second year that made it incredibly difficult for small business in Australia. Add to that, most of my friends or many of my friends, for one reason or another, I think because a lot we met a lot of our friends through motorcycling. I met my husband through motorbikes and our group of friends were predominantly motorcyclists. And they fall into two categories, largely in the motorcycle community or amongst our group of friends. Either they had older grown-up kids who were off their hands or they didn't, didn't have kids at all and weren't ever planning to. And I had a primary-aged kid in that time while well, he was transitioning, actually, it was he was in grade six, which is the last year of primary school here. Uh, and then second year of lockdown, he was going into year seven. And that was a very, very difficult time for him. We got about three hours of schooling a week, three hours a week. And I'm Jewish, I'm obsessed with education. So something had to give. It was going to be it was either going to be my business or it was going to be his education and it sure as hell wasn't going to be his education. So I spent a lot of time with him and, you know, trying to keep him just off devices and finding a variety of things to do, which I utterly failed at. But uh, so my, and and I had also just, uh, I just hadn't realised how differently wired I am than a lot of people. I I do think there's something fundamentally different about my brain, and a lot of that probably has to do with the pros and cons of being brought up by my mother. Um, But automatically, from March 2020, I was writing on Facebook things like, well, hang on, have we thought through the costs of this? And aren't we just shifting the burden from saving these people at this stage, but we are hanging other people out to dry and we are sacrificing this group of people for those group of people? And it felt to me like that classic, you know, ethics 101 with the trolley cart. And if you pull the lever, you know, you've got, you're going to kill five people on this side or one person on that side. Do you pull the lever or not? Well, what if it's five people on this side and five people on that side? Do you pull the lever and divert the trolley cart? And so that's what was kind of going on for me. And I could see that they were offering out grants and stimmy checks in Australia. That was known as JobKeeper. And I'm thinking, where's this money coming from? And this is going to lead to inflation. And have we thought about that? And do we? And nobody cared. And I got called hateful and angry. And I would pose these things as questions. So my experience was very different from the average. You had certainly two Australians. There was the laptop class. This was probably true across the world, who were entirely unaffected and who would you know, sipping their Chardonnay, they're, they're sort of, you know, the, the Chardonnay socialists 
going, oh, well, well, I've, of course, been very lucky. I've been very lucky. And, of course, I don't have children at school and, I'm, you know, I can still do my, my work from home. Uh, and, and they admitted they were lucky and didn't give a toss about the social, emotional and physical and financial impact for vast swathes of society, or that's how it felt to me. Uh, so I did after being called angry and hateful for quite some time. I became angry and hateful for some time, which I am just getting over now. And in fact, Bitcoin and the Bitcoin community has actually been a big part of that, simply because twofold, the community are quite like-minded in terms of values. And Bitcoin is hope, as Michael Saylor would say. And for the first time in my life, having seen all the problems economically and socially for a very long time and feeling really quite flat and depressed about it and, you know, another Holocaust is inevitable has been part of my thinking for many decades, um, Bitcoin is hope. Bitcoin is hope and the community are just a delight. So uh, by starting to connect with the community, which has taken me a long time, I was on my own with Bitcoin for quite a while and I was on my own, you know, losing friends. I lost one real friend and several um, Facebook friends as a result of that period of my life. And so I'm in my in in my sixth decade, let's not be too precise here. And you know, I'm I'm having to start my life again. I've I've had to start a new career. I've had to start a new business. I've had to create new friendships. I want I'm building a new social life. I'm building a new community. I'm having to I'm seeing the world in a very different way. I'm having to really coach myself from being too negative about that period or too resentful with the people around me because I'm stuck in this city for the time being because of my son's education and, and schooling, his partway through high school now, uh, and because of my husband's business. So between one thing and another, I can't easily move and I have to find a way mentally, emotionally and spiritually to... Uh, deal with being around people who not only um, refused to acknowledge the consequences and the police brutality and the rubber bullets at peaceful protesters and the uh, pepper spraying of 70-year-old women. And the I mean, so much went on here. We were having these massive protests and the premier of our state shut down the airspace so there would be no aerial footage of the size of the demonstrations. Uh, at one stage, they were processing people through the border who wanted to get out of Victoria really fast. And the Premier slowed them down on direct orders and and, and wanted footage of big queues to make sure that he wanted to make sure that nobody got through within 45 minutes to make sure that people were being dissuaded from moving across the border and getting any greater level of freedom. So it's amazing how quickly a Berlin Wall can go up. Uh, and so that was my experience of it. And other people were entirely unfazed. And what else were we supposed to do? And we got through it so well and so unscathed and uh, unscathed. And look at our death rates compared to overseas. And people adore him. 
I've got a friend called Izzy um, <laughs> who uses a phrase that tickles my fancy that goes, oh, govern me harder. <laughs> and that's exactly what it is. It feels like something that Stockholm Syndrome coupled with BDSM. It's a freaky, to me, it's freaky, and to them, they see me as freaky. They have no idea why I'm upset about it. Cool. Yeah. Um, so bring us... Follow, take, follow that. Yeah, I can't, obviously. <laughs> uh, bringing us up to date with um, where you are now, having learned about money, I was going to ask a couple of questions. First of all, what do you regard as money? What do you regard as Bitcoin giving you that other currencies can't give you? For example, uh, the the US dollar, you might not want the US dollar, but you may want the Swiss franc instead. Does Bitcoin give you something that the Swiss franc doesn't give you? And what, during the difficult periods of the financial markets, I think you mentioned the 87 crash. Um, what did you learn from those from those periods about how to navigate the markets? Right. Second question first. I don't know that I did. I was never an active trader myself. Um, I was a very conservative investor. And so I really didn't... Um, I, I was too busy being in the thick of it. And to be honest, I was only in it for about 10 years. Uh, and then I walked right away from it and really didn't look at the markets for a very long time whilst I undertook my second career being uh, corporate training. So I don't know that I have a good answer for that. Really, I've learned a lot more about money in these last few years through uh, through COVID and I went looking for a second income. A friend of mine had done very well in the 2018 crypto bull run. I tried to follow in her footsteps. I learned broadly about crypto. I got smashed in the bear run of, so this was 2020, 21 for me. And then I started to separate out Bitcoin from the rest of crypto. And that's, I would say, when I really started to learn about money. And so how is Bitcoin therefore different from the Swiss franc or the US dollar or any other currency on the planet? There's, we have to look at the characteristics of money, what makes good money. And it does require a little history of money to, to understand this a little bit. But when you're just bartering, there's just a kind of mental ledger between you and me about, okay, you've got a pig, I've got a goat, let's swap. But if you've got a pig and I've got 100 apples, that's no use to you. So you don't want 100 apples, they're going to rot, you can't use them, you can't unsell them because there's too many apples in supply. So, so then you need to keep a mental ledger or some sort of physical ledger to go, okay, you owe me an apple supply over the next three years or something like that um, to pay back this one pig, as it were. So eventually what happens is barter becomes cumbersome. So people start to look for a trusted third commodity that will be um, 
fungible, so it's 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 similar no matter who uses it um, across the board and acceptable, widely acceptable across the board. So that's been over the years everything from grain to polished shells to spices and salt to um, commodities. And what they found is they kept trying to find better and better money. And what would happen is grain didn't work well because one bad crop and it's all gone or it becomes so popular that they just grow more. And now you're back to the debasing of the currency, as it were, because you've got excess supply. So one of the characteristics that humans learned over the years is a really important part of an effective money is scarcity. And so whilst we moved into the metals of copper and then silver and eventually gold, gold won out largely because it was in scarcer supply than any other commodity and it was fungible and it didn't rot and it didn't break down in any way. And so it lasted through, you know, it it, it had this time component. It could be used over time. It was never entirely practical over space. One of the problems with gold, of course, is that if I'm taking it across the country, then Robin Hood is likely to get me. If I'm doing international trade, all the more problematic, you've got um, not only the slowness of shipping, but also then the uh, piracy. And, and, And it's heavy, and it's just not practical for bigger trades. So... What happens is they invent banks and now you can put your gold in a bank and be issued a certificate which allows you then to take that gold back out at a later stage. Great, certificates are much more practical than gold for swapping. And so that was the start of money as we know it, these certificates that were redeemable for gold in the bank. But what banks figured out very, very early on is people don't all come in for their gold at once. And so they could issue more certificates than there was actual physical gold reserves. And then what would happen, coming back to the overreach of the Roman Empire, is that during the First World War, they went, okay, we're just going to print way more money than there is gold in order to fund the war. And so you get this kind of cycle that we're back to. You've just talked about the 4,000-year cycle of debasing currencies. And it got further and further away from the gold standard until eventually one day, because all the international reserves of gold were being held in America, France and England were getting a whiff of the fact that they weren't the gold reserves to cover them. They went over to America to to pick up their gold. They wanted their own physical gold. And the Nixon shock was 1971 when Richard Nixon realised America was fundamentally going to default and said, we are breaking away from the gold standard altogether. And Temporarily, now, he said. Temporarily, always with the temporary, nothing as permanent as a temporary, you know, bill. Yeah. So, um, so uh, you know, then we're away from, and now there's only fiat, and fiat means by decree in Latin, and it simply means that the only thing backing the dollar or Swiss franc or any currency on earth as we know it is the government says it will be okay, and you are mandated to use it. 
and taxes have to be paid in it. And so the only thing actually backing it is the fact that taxes will be paid in it. So we are reliant on the GDP of the country and the taxes paid from the economy to be the um, to be the backup, except that we know their debt is way beyond um, not only taxes' ability to pay the debt, but the taxes can't even pay the interest on the debt. And so they're printing money to paper over the debt, and so the spiral continues and gets faster and bigger and deeper and wider. And so we've got this kind of impossible situation. So what is Bitcoin and how is it different from all of this? Bitcoin is absolutely unique. Nothing like it has ever existed before. For the first time in our lives, we have created a money that's not a make-do. You know, gold seems the best of the lot of what we've got on the planet, but is a deliberately designed to meet all the characteristics of sound money, one of which is scarcity. So it will be capped at 21 million Bitcoin and it is programmatically um, embedded such that that can never be changed. And so... It's not only fungible, therefore, you know, you and I can swap it. Your Bitcoin is exactly the same as my Bitcoin. It's as fast as the speed of light. You're in the UK. I'm in Australia. I can send you my Bitcoin. You would have it in 10 seconds flat. Are you, sure, are you sure it's that quick? I don't I don't think it's that quick. Oh, it is. I um, uh, So, okay, this man was in Australia the other day, but I bought his book from him, Nick Bartia's Layered Money, and he was out here in Australia doing a live gig, and I, uh, and I wanted to buy the book from him. Of course, he doesn't want my Aussie dollars. They're absolutely useless to him in America. None of his US payment apps worked in Australia, so he said, you know, I won't take anything other than Bitcoin. So I zapped him my Bitcoin and it was with him in probably, I mean, from the time I took out my phone and opened up the app and sent it to him, it was 10 seconds. Right. It probably from the time I hit the send button to the time he received it, it would have been under three. So it is lightning fast on the lightning layer. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, so, so, that's so we should difference. explain that yes. really. I know some, yes. yeah, I'm, I'm asking questions also that I know the answer to as well, just, but it, yes. it's nice to hear different explanations and you, you're explaining it very well. So it's very useful to, for people to hear. Good stuff. Um, and you're absolutely right that I do need to make a differentiation between uh, the Bitcoin blockchain and transactions that happen at the core level of the Bitcoin blockchain versus apps and layers that are being built on top of that core blockchain, one of which is called Lightning and facilitates much faster trans faster and cheaper transactions. And of course, that technology is building out all the time. So why is it sounder money than the, the Swiss franc? Fundamentally, it's because it is almost, I mean, I, I, I don't want to say perfect money because I don't know that I'm qualified to say that, but it's as close to perfect money as the human species has ever had. Uh, and, and part of that is also in terms of its revolutionary nature, 
is that we have never before been able to create digital scarcity. So what I mean by that is everything that's ever been online, you've been able to copy and paste. And so there was no way of keeping control of the number of copies that existed out there. Whereas because of the cryptography behind Bitcoin, you cannot create you cannot create more. You cannot copy. You cannot copy and paste. So that's just that's because of the encryption behind it. Um, and there was just another thought crossing my mind in relation to that. Oh, of course, the final part of that is in relation to me sending Bitcoin to you across the planet is there's no middlemen involved. So because it's decentralized, because it's a distributed ledger across the planet, a peer-to-peer network, what we do is we cut out not only the government in terms of issuing the currency. So so a common expression in the libertarian movement is if you want to get money out of politics, get politics out of money. So uh, it takes government out of the, the money business. They cannot control and influence it. Equally, there's no middlemen required. So you take out a huge swathe of the financial sector, the businesses like the banks and the payments, the PayPal's and the credit cards. And instead of them taking billions of dollars in transaction fees every year, you and I get to, to, to transact direct with one another with some privacy, just like me giving you twenty a $20 bill or a £20 bill direct across the ocean. So that's a number of ways in which Bitcoin is very different from any currency we see in the world today. Where does the perceived value of, of Bitcoin arise? Is it, is it because the installed base is sufficiently high that it's reached critical mass? That's part of it. Um, it. Certainly, the adoption is such now that there's something like 200 million wallet holders on the planet. So, people, 200 million people who own at least a little bit of Bitcoin. The network is broadening out. There's tens of thousands of nodes across the planet verifying the transactions that go through. So, there's something called a Lindy effect, which is where the longer the- something lasts, the longer it will last. Spot on, spot on. And we're 14 years in now. Um, That's great. And then you've also got game theory at play. So, you know, you've just got El Salvador, who who have been using Bitcoin as legal tender for over a year now. Uh, All you need is one other trading partner to come on board. And suddenly you start to get other uh, other countries wanting to come on board, like the BRICS nations at the moment, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, and I believe there's half a dozen other nations that have just joined up a kind of extended BRICS group, don't want to trade in US dollars anymore because they know, for instance, that the US can just freeze SWIFT like they did with Russia at the beginning of the Russia-Ukraine war. And this is the other thing about Bitcoin is it's unfreezable and it's unconfiscatable. So the Canadian truck drivers didn't agree with their government. Okay, this is not a matter of whether you agree or disagree with their stance. The fact of the matter is that Democracy is meant to be about being able to speak up against your government. But in that case, not only the truck drivers had their banks 
bank accounts frozen, but anyone who tried to um, to give to them, to you know, to to offer support to them financially, also had their bank accounts frozen. Now that's a scary world. That if I disagree with my government, I get my funds fundamentally not quite stolen from me, but um, frozen until such time as I I choose to comply of my own free will. And so that's a terrifying prospect. So adoption is a big part of it. Uh, and uh, and so you get then, um, I mean, it's just as likely that China and Russia, along with their gold reserves, may well be hoarding Bitcoin at the moment and none of us would know about it because, why? you know, that's the, the, the privacy that goes with it. So they could easily be hoarding some of that. And once that cat's out of the bag, everybody else is in on it. So, you know, we've got ETFs, um, you know, a spot ETF uh, is is now being approved. But for, So BlackRock wants in on the act. So now we're getting institutions. You've got high net worth individuals. If they allocate just 1% of their net worth into Bitcoin, now you've also got a change to the, uh, the U.S., FASB rules, which is the to fair value. So this is about the accounting rules for businesses. And this will mean that businesses will be able to put Bitcoin on their treasuries. You've got Rio de Janeiro has allocated 1% of its treasury already to Bitcoin. You've got mayors and sports stars and artists and, you know, um, artists like singer-songwriters, et cetera, taking their salaries in Bitcoin. So you are just getting this massive awareness and network that comes out of it. And I have no idea what the original question was. <laughs> well, mine was simply from what does it derive its value, but you've painted a very a very good picture of, of why people value it. I, I, I suppose my next question would be hearing a, quite a positive to take on the, the current implementation of Bitcoin gives rise to the suspicion or the not not the fear that the hope that maybe central banks have left the introduction of CBDC too late. They're they're ready they're ready playing they're they're running to catch up and nobody wants their crap. <laughs> Let's hope that's true. Let's hope that's true. I uh, look they're still building it out at a million miles an hour. Chinese uh, China's obviously ahead of the curve on that one. And, uh, you know, uh, Biden brought in some woman who was head of currency. She was the comptroller of currency or something. And she was going to instigate two measures. One was everyone has to have a bank account with the Federal Reserve and that all bank accounts would be linked to a social credit score. So compliance which is just a horrifying prospect. And so are they too late to the party? I know they're working on it really fast, but a couple of things about that. Uh, number one is that if there's any level of choice in it, I think a lot of people will choose to opt out. I was chatting with a cousin of mine who's in regional Western Australia at the moment, and she said there's a lot of people who use cash in WA or in the regional areas in the in the country, the farmers and the miners out that way. And she said for the over 60s, that's just because they never really got used to the new technology. But for the under 40s, it's a political statement. They don't want to be tracked. 
They don't want all their and, – and this is the problem with CBDCs. I think that we're getting ahead of the game. So usually it's the government putting out the propaganda against any new innovation. But in this case, I think the awareness that independent media has been putting out there and even mainstream media to some degree about the fact that CBDCs can be used to control you and they can freeze your accounts and they can um, confiscate your accounts and 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 they can control your spend and they can suddenly say to you that you can't spend on this and they can freeze it or you or there's a maximum amount of spending on this or we don't agree with that company's political stance therefore you can't spend with that with that company or maybe there's an expiry date on it and you you either have to spend it because they want to stimulate the economy or you lose it. So there's no capacity to save. Uh, the WEF have already said that um, they would minimise the accounts of poorer people uh, because there would be a minimum, tra- a maximum transaction size and a ma- maximum saving size within their accounts for their, you know, of course, always for their own good. So there's always this kind of sense of, of course, it's for your own good, but all it does is perpetuate the poverty cycle. So I do think you may be right that there would be, without mandating it, there might be limited take-up. But, I mean, I don't know that. The, Melbourne, you know, Melbourne has proven to me that I they love being locked down. They loved being mandated. They love having a nanny state and the government looking after them. And they don't want the responsibility and they don't want the independence and they don't want to have to think for themselves and they don't want to look after their own health and their own well-being and their own finances. And so I don't I don't know which way it would go. I really don't. I th- one of the most important elements of this is obviously education and letting the younger people know what's going on. And they're growing up in a digital age that we were never party to. The adoption of cryptocurrencies seems to be far more likely by that generation. My only fear about the way that CBDCs could be implemented. It's. I don't think it will be by choice. And I just wonder what you thought about this. Mm. It, it could be that we get to a situation, um, possibly one with hyperinflation, possibly after a, a crash um, in the markets, possibly linked to the introduction of UBI. What, it's right. Si- yes. si- similar to what happened in two thousand and eight, where the financial system is in a position where people's bank accounts are actually going to be wiped out unless they do something. And that was that was the situation then. So with the next one, the, the option might be, and this is based just on a guess, uh, that they might say, well, look, you can either have your bank account, which has got X amount in, or you can have CBDCs. That's and your account goes to zero, or you can have this. So people will may end up not having a choice. Um, what, what do you think about that as a scenario? Yeah, it's 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 deeply distressing, uh, and it could easily happen. Uh, and that's why Bitcoin, because they can't touch a Bitcoin. Um, the uh, there's a couple of thoughts that just went through my mind as you said that. Uh, 
Gee, isn't that funny? I've just completely lost my train of thought. I I do worry about that, and it is one of the reasons I hold Bitcoin. One of the biggest uh, adopters, this was where I was thinking, of Bitcoin is in the global south. So the uptake in Nigeria is upwards of 50% of the population because they've experienced hyperinflation and they understand the value of a limited supply uh, currency. Um, you're seeing similar sorts of things going on in some parts of, of South America. So it may well be that regardless of whether they um, whether they mandate a CBDC, uh, the adoption may well, and it does feel like a race at the moment, may be out of their hands. Um, I had a woman, I run a, uh, my own Bitcoin podcast these days because I got so enthusiastic and I knew nobody in Australia who was a fellow Bitcoiner. So I started a podcast just to meet other Bitcoiners. Um, and I had this fabulous woman on the show at one stage, Lisa Huff, and she was working at the time with uh, and this is a big industry now, but uh, so it's the energy industry using their stranded energy. So Bitcoin miners will set up by um, by uh, an energy source and the stranded or the waste energy that was going to get burnt off like a gas flare for instance, is being used by Bitcoin miners. And there's a whole um, benefit because Bitcoin miners can turn up and turn off at the switch of a button. And so it can take on excess energy when required and then stop using it the moment it's not required. And so, um, and she said in the program, I don't care what the government do because the and like the energy miners are taking this up at a million miles an hour and the global south is taking it up at a million miles an hour. And so you've got people, this adoption, even though the West are slow on board because life looks like it's still reasonably comfortable and easy, the adoption at that, um, the adoption but also the, the um instigation of miners or the setup of mining operations, publicly listed organizations with massive rollout. And once you've got BlackRock bringing in a spot ETF, and then you've got someone like Dennis Porter, who has been lobbying, particularly around the various states in America, lobbying them on this mining issue and the difference it makes to not only the efficiency and the consistency of their energy, but also then the cost, you know, reducing the cost by being able to minimise those fluctuations, those highs and lows of energy production and demand. And so there's... Um, you might be right. I think, yes, I think they will want to mandate it. And certainly, I think by that stage, the Bitcoin community and people's capacity to access Bitcoin will be so great that there's nothing they can do about it. And whether they like it or not, they might be limited in the restrictions they can place on CBDCs and the way they can manipulate the population using money as a weapon. 
they may be limited by the fact that there is an alternative and they will see a mass exodus if and and bitcoin can't be confiscated so when that happened and people were buying gold in the 1930s in the US they banned gold they made everybody hand in their gold it was s6102 or something and for 40 years you couldn't buy gold in the US you can't do that with bitcoin there's no physical way for the government to shut it down the best they can do is shut down the on and off ramps which is like the exchanges where you buy your bitcoin but a there's ways around that and b it will only send it underground for a period of time like you know bootleg ligger or something like that yeah i i, I I think they might lose that. But I'm, I'm sure they're going to lose that battle in the wrong, long run, but it's just a matter of timing. You've mentioned two subjects that I wanted to expand upon. One is privacy and one uh, is the energy use of Bitcoin and, and how many people have said that it's using too much energy, it's not uh, you know, eco-friendly, etc. It's very interesting to hear that this is what's happening with the ed- energy companies. But I wanted to relate that to what uh, a previous hero of mine, Nassim Taleb, who seems to have switched in some ways. You mentioned the Lindy effect. Obviously, you're familiar with his work and his early work, Black the Black Swan, which I think is very relevant when it comes to dealing with crashes. And I think Bitcoin comes into that because a lot of the time when people are analysing markets, they're, they're dealing with normal markets, but we know... If you go back in history, you're going to find not normal markets where everything just goes crazy and it will repeat. It always does. And so it's important to have an understanding of what normal is and where people will turn. But he used the argument, a very strange one, because he was pro Bitcoin. I just wonder, I've asked yeah. a few, quite a few people this and, I, I, you know, I'm just intrigued because for somebody who I really respected, I can't get a good answer as to why he feels that Bitcoin is no longer the no longer good for purpose. And he seems to criticize it almost on a daily basis, saying it recent volume went down. He's saying, oh, that's that's prime for scammers to push it, push it around. And I was thinking that's such an odd thing to say. And, and he was saying that. Uh, because it will fail and it will go to zero. And the reason why it will go to zero is because unlike a bar of gold, which does not require any energy, once it's been extracted, it doesn't require energy to maintain it. The Bitcoin network requires constant power and energy and miners forevermore in order to keep it going. And if people start to fall off the network, the whole thing could start to implode. Um, what what do you think about that? It, it, I, I don't know what to make of Nassim Taleb. And there's a number of people in this space whose position on Bitcoin I find uh, surprising and interesting. Some of them, it's obvious that they are benefiting from the current fiat system and they're basically, um, you know, incentivized not to look at it and not to understand it. I don't know what the case is for Nassim. But in terms of the ongoing energy, I think there's there's two aspects to the energy required to keep it up. Um, but both of them relate actually to the incentive structure that's been built into Bitcoin for miners. So up until the year 2140, when the last Bitcoin is mined, 
there's an incentive structure that means that if you mine, there is the possibility of Bitcoin reward. And so that makes it that makes it attractive that if, you know, I, uh, I win the right to create a block of transactions, I get rewarded in Bitcoin. So that's fantastic. Uh, after 2140, there's still incentive in the system, even though it's no longer a reward structure, it's transaction fees, just like a bank. So I don't, the incentive structure is always there. Self-interest will always win out. And to the degree that Bitcoiners are finding cheaper and cheaper energy sources, well over 50%, I think 60 or 65% uh, of Bitcoin miners are now using green and renewable energies. It's like the highest, in, in terms of industries, it's the highest usage of uh, green energy, as far as I know, of any industry. So part of that is that we're always looking for cheaper and cheaper sources of energy. And so the thing about a Bitcoin mine is it can be set up in a, anywhere. So it can be set up next to a dam. It can be so hydroelectricity. It can be set up next to a volcano and it can use thermal energy. It can be set up next to or geothermal en energy, I should say. So, you know, we've talked about the gas or whatever, coal mines, I suppose. But um so the cost of energy comes down. The rewards, albeit they have every four years up until 2140, but they are still there. And then you've still got transaction costs that are forever going to pay. for. So you're getting a lower cost base and a consistent um, fee return. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me as an argument. So just uh, a, a quick question on the transaction that you did recently. Yes. If you don't mind, how much was it and how much did you pay in a fee? Oh, uh, you know what? I didn't actually check it, but it was tiny because it was on the Lightning Network. So right. the, the book was about Aussie dollars. I think it was maybe about 25 bucks. Mm -hmm. um, and the fee was a few cents maximum. Really? Okay. So it's it that, was that fishing. small. Okay. Yeah, it was really tiny. Uh, so it's often, I, I mean, I understand that if it had been on the Bitcoin blockchain, it would have been fairly expensive at the moment, I understand. Mm. But because it was lightning, it was unbelievably small. It was ridiculously small. And I should check it. It's a very good question. And I think I was too busy in conversation with the author that I didn't actually stop and look at the detail of the transaction. But it's basically ne negligible compared to... Negligible. Yeah. Absolutely <clears throat> tiny. Yeah, because um, the fee element is one quite big one. Um, people have said, you know, dealing on, for example, the Ethereum network, we can come on to other coins if that's that's something that you know about. But let, let's just say the transaction fees have been a big talking point and quite prohibitive for people to make anything other than sort of large purchases and that's why Bitcoin was maybe considered to be the cryptocurrency that mostly mirrors gold. You'd sort of buy it and have it there and let it sit there as a as a hedge against perhaps the system and then hope, kind of hope that you never need to use it. Um, but it sounds like for day-to-day -day transactions, we've heard and talked about the Lightning Network many times, um, if that is developing as a technology and can transact in a very short space of time for mere sense, then it's becoming far more viable. 
It really is. Look, I it's not my area of specialisation uh, and it is something I need to, th- there's so much to kind of learn in this space and, and I'm often good with big picture concepts and once it gets down to the nitty gritty and the detail, I tend to lose focus and lose interest a little bit. Um, and that's not to say that I haven't tried my best to understand some of the technology and the processes and it was kind of everything in my power simply to set up a wallet and learn how to transact. So I was think I think I was feeling so proud of myself for being able to make that transaction so quickly that I didn't stop and look at the detail. Um, but I do think that there's a there's a lot of like there's a lot of circular economies going on now where people are transacting with on the Lightning Network, and you keep a small amount of sats which is the 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 smallest denomination of mm. of um bitcoin so each bitcoin is split into 100 mil, million satoshis and uh, so most people are doing that on the lightning network and you'll have a wallet in your phone where you keep a small amount of cash like you would keep or, or a certain number of sats like you would keep cash in your wallet and you just use that for your day-to-day transactions and that's been feasible for an entire economy like El Salvador because they're set up on the lightning network using the strike app so um I don't, yeah, it's, you're right. I know there's a lot of talk about it at the moment and it's something that's lacking in my, in my knowledge base because I'm just too busy focused on other things at the moment. So we, we really, what really needs to happen is the actual, once you get over the barrier of setting up a wallet and doing all the things that you need to do to create your account and send money, it can become just rudimentary. But the problem is, I think in this space, because the technology is difficult to grasp, you know, it, it, to be honest, it really is. It's 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 not straightforward. It's not like you know, opening a Spotify account or something like that. It is there is there are steps, and you have to be careful. You also have to know who you're dealing with, because there are people out there who are taking advantage of that lack of knowledge and pretending that they can do it for you, and pretending that if you send them money, they will buy you bitcoin and actually all they're doing is just taking your money so th- there are a lot of scams out there that have been associated with bitcoin itself and people have said it is just a scam which it isn't but there inevitably there are people out there who are taking advantage but you could say the, the same thing about the use of, you could say the same thing about the use of cash which is people Definitely. will always exploit cash so therefore cash should not be used which is a nonsense argument yeah absolutely i mean it's you can apply it to anything there's people that, that call you up and say you know i'm calling from your broadband company and we've got a problem with we've had a problem with your broadband let me just log into your computer and help you out oh we're going to send you some money oh just open your bank account and um, you'll see the money go in and they do all this stuff to change the numbers on the screen to make it look like they've sent you money and then they pretend they've sent you too much and you know they say oh sorry i've sent you a thousand could you send me 500 back or whatever it might be and it's all a scam so there are there are people out there who spend their days plotting this stuff and they're the most awful Mm. people um yeah um but that 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 is to be fair it's not like it's it's simple and that has to that in some ways has to change i don't know whether it can but it would be if we want mass adoption by our friends and families and you know people who um 
just ask the question, don't even know what it really is, need need the ex- the explanations. That barrier to entry, I think, needs to be simpler. But there is also one other aspect that that has worried certain people, and that is that the transactions themselves aren't actually private. Once you know, they're pseudo um, anonymous. So if if I know what your wallet address is, I might know what you're transacting and who potentially to, if, if I know your wallet address, I know all the transactions that you're doing. That is potentially something that the government could stop. If, once they've associated it with you, they, they may legally try to, um, well, if, if they demand that they take control of that particular account, I don't know how we would stop that, um, which is why some people move to privacy coins like Monero, where the blockchain itself, where all the transactions are shown, are also private. So you can't actually see anything that's going on. Then the argument comes that it's being used for nefarious purposes and, you know, drug dealing or whatever it might be, and the dark web, which, of course, cash is used for that too, but it just makes it easier and sort of plays into the argument that it should be stopped by the government. I just wonder what you thought about the privacy issue. Mm. Well, I, I mean, you brought up two different issues there. There's there's the scamming factor and the the difficulty of the technology, and then there's the privacy factor. Mm. Uh, on the on the um, the scamming side, uh, I mean, and as you said, scams go on left, right, and centre. As long you know, buyer beware. It doesn't matter what you're involved in. Uh, I do think the technology is getting easier and easier, and I do feel that with every cycle, there's a build-out of new businesses. Bearing in mind, of course, there's no business here. There is no Bitcoin business. There is no marketing department. There is no C-suite. There is no anyone. There is just a protocol like the internet, but nobody marketing it and pushing it except those of us who care about it and believe that it can change the world. So. And people are building out as quickly as they possibly can with technologies that make it easier and easier to onboard. And I will say that uh, certainly at the level of Hot Wallet, which is only, you know, setting up a wallet on your phone or your device, that's actually very easy. It's certainly easier than setting up a bank account. There's a number of steps involved, much like setting up a bank account, uh, but it's much easier and much quicker and it can all be done within an hour probably. Uh, So that bit is easy. The bit that freaks people out is having a cold wallet, which is where you take your, uh, you don't want your Bitcoin either left on an exchange or left in a wallet that's connected to the internet and is therefore vulnerable. So using a cold wallet, there is no doubt, uh, takes a little bit of learning, but that is the at the moment, until it becomes, and they are making it easier and easier, but at the moment, yes, it requires, like the, the last, I, I just set up a new cold wallet device recently, and I went through a 15-minute YouTube tutorial, and I had my wallet set up by the end of that 15 minutes. So, it and it wasn't even official, I just looked up, you know, Bitbox tutorial, setup tutorial. Like I just looked up some random stranger, some Swedish bloke on the internet giving me advice on here, do this, do that. And I'm like, oh, okay, done. So it was just like following a recipe. Frankly, if you can follow a recipe, you can set up a cold storage account. 
So there is that. Yeah. So, and, again, and I, also, I, I would, I, sorry, I, sorry. I'm sorry to cut in, but I would really like to interject. You have to be very, very careful about doing things like that because there will be people who will set up a fake YouTube video how-to and, uh, you know, and all that stuff. You see, right. because your level of, of understanding might be above, say, somebody who's who, who doesn't like technology. Brand, and, yeah. and and therefore, I think part of why I like to discuss these things is so people can think about that and just be more careful when they're dealing in the space. There is some great upsides, but they're also, you've got to double check, treble check, go back, make sure that this person is not, you know, setting something up that you are, or, or you know, you do a Google search and say, you know, click a link on Medium that says how to do something and find that actually what you're doing is sharing all your bank details with somebody who's going to, you know, try and hack your bank account. So you just, it's, you just have to be really careful at every step. You wouldn't want your mother That's doing really, it. It's a really valid comment. And Equally, I was going to say there's new. Um, there's not only a lot of consultants who will help you, but again, you've got to do your research. Mm. But you've got, and again, you've got to do your research. But there's also options like multi-sig. So, uh, I'll give a small plug to a company in Sydney here, Australia, the Bitcoin Advisor, and they work with people all over the world. But they, um, they'll help you, for instance. And there's other businesses like this. It's not exclusive to them. But if you're an older person and you're doing your estate planning and you've got some Bitcoin, but you're nervous about that whole process of self-storage, then they will help and do with Unchained and themselves and you. So there's three keys and you need two out of three people to um, make a transaction. And there's also uh, walls in place so that there can't be collusion. So there's... Um, uh, or protections in place, I should say. So there are new businesses and new technologies coming out all the time to make it more secure, to make it more safe, to make it more usable, to make it more easy. But, you know, we're not there yet. It's still a really young industry. It's 14 years old. And to begin with, it was just a few cypherpunks. And here we are with now 200 million users around the world. And there's not a lot of, um, you know, it's really, it's relying on volunteers and, and people who have got startups because they know it's going somewhere, but there's no money in it yet. All of this stuff is still going on. So you're right, there's, there's a problem with it being early days and like anything in the early days, just like the internet in the early days, everyone, were, I mean, and to this day, we're all susceptible to phishing scams and, you know, all sorts of email scams that go on to this day. And that's despite the internet being, what, 25 years old or longer now? Um, so, so that's absolutely, it is absolutely an issue. And it requires a bit of, because so much of this is about self-responsibility, it's about you looking after your own money instead of trusting a bank or a government, it does require a bit of extra effort for you to be your own bank and to learn about how to do that safely. It's a, it's a really valid point and it's a really important point to bring up. The privacy I'm less well-versed on. Um, I'm aware of Monero. I don't know all the details of how it works. But at the end of the day, I don't see how... A government could take over, they certainly couldn't take over your cold storage device. At the end of the day, it's just a wallet address. They, I don't think they can 
find out who you are behind that wallet. You know, there's wallets all over the internet and there's only one or two of them that we know actually who they are um, by the size of their transactions. And when they mention they've done a transaction like El Salvador or Michael Saylor, for instance, we probably have a sense of which wallets theirs are. But I don't think the government or anyone else, again, it's not my area of specialisation because we're getting deep into the technology now, but I don't think there's any way the government can track who a specific wallet, well, certainly not a cold storage wallet, um, but even a, uh, is there a way they could, I, I don't know, I don't know the answer to that, whether they could access your hot wallet in some way, um, but I, that's why I would only ever keep a very small amount on a on a hot wallet. And you can always, you know, if you lose a little bit on there or it gets frozen, open a new open a new wallet with a different wallet provider. <laughs> so another aspect is you mentioned how there's been an adoption by, I think you said, sort of media stars and sports stars or whatever it might be who who want to be paid in Bitcoin and whoever they may be whether they're famous or not, I suppose it doesn't really matter. Uh, one of the elements of, or one of the criticisms of, of Bitcoin has been the volatility and how obviously the value has fluctuated enormously in its, um, in its history so far and possibly in, in its history to come. We will see more of the same. That again has been used as an argument as it not being a valid medium of either exchange or, or storage of wealth because it can fluctuate so much. My own thoughts on that is, have you ever seen a currency collapse? Well, that can happen to you. So the fact that it's a volatile market just means it's part and parcel of the financial system, and it may be more volatile than others, but it's still in a very early stage, and it will settle down. I remember the ERM crisis uh, very well in the 90s, uh, working for a bank, and we saw how all the currencies across Europe were, were imploding against the Deutschmark um, prior to the ERM. But I just wonder what your thought was of day-to-day -day volatility of how much, for example, in your transactions, it might be that you're buying something, you know, one week and it's, it's uh, the value is, is X and then suddenly your Bitcoin's worth a lot less and, and um, you, you're, you're finding that it's, it's not worth as much and, you have to put more or convert more fiat, I suppose, is, is the way of looking at it. Yeah, uh, I think your own answer is a, is a really important one, a really powerful one. You need to differentiate risk versus volatility. And, and the second part of that is be thinking much more long term. So if I'm doing a daily transaction like buying that book, I am fundamentally selling, if you like, my Bitcoin at today's price, and I aim to replace it at that price. So, and that's a common practice amongst amongst Bitcoiners, so that you're not being impacted to the same degree by that volatility. But in terms of thinking things through as far as a longer time preference goes, or thinking longer term, I guess is a, a way to think of it, is there's volatility just as there is in an Amazon stock. Certainly Amazon in its first, in, first 14 years was hugely volatile, but even looking at it today, it's massively volatile. So a little bit of imagining, it's a little bit like 
using Amazon stock as if it was a currency. And so there's definitely volatility there. But the point that you brought up that's incredibly important is that all currencies, because of the rate at which they are printing money and debasing the value of your currency, the purchasing power of your fiat, are heading to zero. That is maths and that is is an a far greater risk in my mind over a 10, 20, 30 year period than the immediate volatility of Bitcoin. So I'm less phased. And again, you've got to think about what percentage of your portfolio as a long-term investment is Bitcoin going to be. But to the degree that your asset allocation might include property, shares, gold, you know, and fixed interest. So, you might want to include Bitcoin as a hedge against all of the others because your property and your shares in particular, can uh, uh, everything's being priced in US dollars. None of those are a viable currency in their own right with any reasonable liquidity to use as cash. And so, uh, I, so my sense is that I'm you know, other than the little bit that I keep in my hot wallet for buying the occasional book or whatever, everything else is in cold storage and I will not touch that for 10, 20, 30, 50 years. That is for my son, that is for my uh, grandchildren, that will be for my great-grandchildren, all of whom I'm unlikely to ever meet. It is for the next generation. It is setting up for humanity a healthier and uh, the potential for a more productive and fair and egalitarian society. So there's an element of selfishness in it, of course. I do believe that over the long term, you will see, you know, people often say, when moon. So I do think that potentially within my lifetime, we will see Bitcoin at 500,000, 600,000 US dollars, which is roughly what would bring it to the same market capitalization as gold. Uh, and potentially more, plenty of people are calling out for it to be anywhere between a million US dollars and 12 million US dollars of so, uh, various ranges of prediction that I've heard within a 10 to 20 year period. Take that with a grain of salt. This is not financial advice. But the but when you're when you're saying that fiat is going to zero, there is no way around it with the amount that they've printed and the debt that they are in. This is the Roman Empire, and whether it takes another sixty years or whether it takes another hundred years, it's going to hell in a handbasket. And and you know, so from that point of view, I think the risk of Bitcoin is far lower than the risk of holding cash in the long term. I mean, to, uh, sorry, just by way of comparison, in terms of the debasing of the currency, if you had $100 a 100 years ago, that would today buy you $3 worth of goods. So that is, that's the debasement of your currency. That is guaranteed debasement of the currency. Tim, mic did, drop, mic drop moment. Did you want to... <laughs> No, I'm good. I'm going to channel my inner Charlie Munger. Nothing to add. Okay. So a, a couple more, if I may, um, sure. in yes. terms of how far away do you think we might be from that 
final realization that uh, there's no way back from fiat? Uh, look, I I don't know. We are. I I, I think there's something. Isn't there a um, a statistic? I don't think anyone would try and put a time on it. And I'm you know I'm no great macroeconomist. Not even Michael Saylor or Preston Pish or any of those kind of big smart guys are trying to put a time frame on it. But there is something about when debt is at there's a tipping point when debt is at 130% of GDP. And I think the US is currently at 128% of GDP. That means it's guaranteed downhill from there because they cannot finance the interest on the debt. And you've got China scrambling to get out of US treasuries. That it It's, you know, the whole thing feels deeply unstable. And, you know, China and Russia don't want to use US dollars anymore, but nobody wants the yuan and nobody wants Russian rubles. So where are they going to go? The BRICS nations are looking for some sort of commodity-backed or a basket of commodity-backed, you know, currency of some sort, but that seems highly unlikely to actually happen. It just seems like Bitcoin is there and it's people are going to get to it as a logical conclusion. You can't tell me that the Russian hackers who are renowned and brilliant and have scammed everybody in the entire world. There's barely anyone who hasn't been scammed by a Russian hacker at some stage, business or personal. You can't tell me that they haven't tried to hack the Bitcoin system, realized it's unhackable, that by trying to hack it, all you do is add to the security of it. And they're not talking to Putin about that someone's talk, you know, there's got to be, that's got to be happening. There are going to be people who don't like the US. There are going to be people in high places who are twigging to the power. North Korea, well, didn't they make gains and spend it on nuclear armaments? Well, they they um, they have counterfeit dollars, super dollars, as they're known. This apparently they're so good that you can't tell the difference. All dollars, are, all dollars are counterfeit dollars, Paul. Two stories. Brilliant. But I mean, you've you've, you've you've highlighted the I think the the pertinent comparison, which is the one of Russia, which is, you know, the born in the the, the USSR born in the chaos of the Russian Revolution in 1917, and the Berlin Wall fell in 1989. But for every year of its existence. Uh, intelligent outside observer says this is doomed to fail, but it still lived, as you say, sixty plus years. All you, all we can all do as as observers and investors is acknowledge that you know that there could have been stability. There is no longer stability. You have to accept the instability and prepare accordingly. And then, to the extent that it may happen tomorrow, five years, ten years, or never, it won't be never. It'll definitely happen. But you just have to you know prepare accordingly and. To that extent, it's just better to be positioned early because in the time old phrase of the markets, better, you know, if you're going to panic, panic early. And if you're, you know, enjoy the party, but dance near the door. That's lovely. Um, and, and you're back to the black swan thing, aren't you? Gradually, then suddenly it's that sense of, you know, there's this slow network, well, not so slow network adoption, but, you know, you've seen those adoption curves, the S. The S, sorry, my my husband's going out for a swim. He's he's mimicking. He's <laughs> he's doing swim strokes. You, in you might you might need to take some of this offline, Carrie. We'll deal with it later. <laughs> so he's off. It's, for a, a, swim. it's a family show. It's a family show. Keep it clean. Keep it clean. So um, the 
Uh, I've totally lost my train of thought. Now I'm imagining it's, it's him as swimmers, it's and it's, it's all over adoption. for me. It's all over. It's but I do think adoption. that gradually, then suddenly, there's you've got this. You know, you get these S-shaped adoption curves where it's slow to begin with, and then it just goes ballistic for a period of time, and then there's a bit of tail end. Charlie's taking it up at the end, which is that you know, and a bell-shaped uh, or bell-shaped adoption curve where you get the early adopters, and then you get the mainstream and the conservatives, and and then finally it's the skeptics who take it up at the end. But there's often an event, a black swan event that tips the scales at some point. So I'm guessing you don't have much dealings with the other coins, the uh, altcoins and, um, and, and such like. Very little. Um, to begin with, I was trying to learn to trade them and I was learning a fair bit of technical analysis. And as part of that, I was getting a bit into the fundamentals of each. And funnily enough, for the first time in probably a year today, I listened to your British fellow, Guy, from uh, Coin Bureau uh, and caught up on a tiny bit of altcoin news. And part of that is because I'm starting to see the altcoin space as the playground for developers where uh, where Bitcoin developers will um, learn from and pick and choose from and pick ideas that can be built into layer two and layer three kind of dApps. So, I am interested to re-engage with and learn about the altcoin space, but it's it's not for the time being my area of expertise. So I've I've needed to deep dive into Bitcoin for over a year now, where I've just put my whole and soul energies, and now I'm just starting to feel like I want to broaden out again and understand more about what's actually taking place in the in altcoins in in the broader crypto sphere and if you could create the monetary system in a way <laughs> if you were if you were in charge of it what would it look like <laughs> Good grief! It would be an absolute mess. What it would be, <laughs> I would. Well, the I current would just... one's really peachy, so I don't think I can do any worse than that. <laughs> uh, look, I'm um, I'm a libertarian, so it would involve as little government intervention as possible. And I would hand it over to people like Michael Saylor and people way smarter than me, and go. You tell me what to do here. But uh, as a libertarian, I think um, I'm somewhere between minarchist and anarchist or anarcho-capitalist perhaps, whereby I believe there is nothing that the government can do that the private sector can't do better. I do not believe there is any aspect of society except perhaps military that cannot be better served by the private sector. And so I would reduce the public servant, the public service, I should say, by 90% as a starting point. <laughs> and then let capitalists take over and entrepreneurs and people who are driven by self-interest to create competitive, smart products. One of the big problems with something like health is that at the moment, because there's a seemingly free alternative, which we all know isn't free because we pay for it through the nose with our taxes, for massive incompetence and wastage and massive middle management 
flatulence. There's this, um, there's a dearth then of good, cheap health providers because you've got free and therefore the only space left for private providers is expensive. Whereas if you take government out of health, what you end up with is a little bit like cars. Yes, you'll have the top-end Ferraris and Rolls-Royces, but equally there's Hyundais and Toyotas and a whole bunch, and same with phones and same with televisions. And when you take the government out of stuff, the private market finds a way to cater for every budget and for every person in some way, shape or form. And equally, um, you know, big roads, you know, they can be, that can be funded by venture capitalists. And then you've got local roads that can be chipped in for by the local community. I just don't see a, a, a service that is not better served by the private sector. It makes no sense to me, the size of government and the fact that they can print money just to, uh, uh, by way of the Cantillon effect, which is whereby they get access to that money first. And people at the top end of financial markets, because of their interactions with the Federal Reserve and the issuance of treasuries through the financial market system, they get access to that money first. And as a result of that, they spend on assets. So you get asset inflation. And that outstrips the pace of normal inflation for day-to-day -day people. And then eventually that inflation dribbles down to consumer inflation and we've got to deal with the increased price of bananas and petrol. And so it's such a deeply unfair system the way it is at the moment. So needless to say, it would certainly be on a Bitcoin standard. There would be no capacity for the government to interfere with the monetary system. And uh, I would hand, I would, I would just dismantle, I would dismantle, defund the government. Is there, is there a risk? I think I'm about to burst into tears <laughs> of joy, of joy, I should add. <laughs> Indeed. What was the what was the risk, Paul? Well, during times of growth, if you have if you have two countries and one is printing money and the other isn't, and trying to maintain fiscal responsibility and monetary responsibility, that that country that is is trying to do the responsible thing could risk falling behind the other countries because the growth of money or the printing of money at certain points is okay. It's just when it gets out of control and it's been abused, used and abused, that's where the problem comes. So I always wonder whether if you were to anchor it on something like Bitcoin where you can't increase the supply, has that got a risk of restricting the economy in a way that you then get forced out of the system in a very similar way to when we had the the run up to the 2007 crash where all the banks were just lending money left right and center because it was one big party there were a few banks and you know Lloyd's was one of them that uh, did not lend in that way and was very conservative and sort of suffered the um, that suffered the pressure of the market to actually join because everyone else was making so much money. In the end, it was academic because they then got forced to um, swallow up HBOS, which um, went 
effectively bankrupt. So they they had to to take that on board and kind of ruin all the work that they'd done up to that point. The market forced them into that situation. I just wondered whether in that scenario, on a global stage, unless everybody's doing it, you kind of get forced down a certain road one way or another. What what would you think about that? Wow, it's a really interesting idea and one that I haven't thought about. So I and it's basically the idea that I think Robert F. Kennedy is putting forward is the idea of US dollar backed by Bitcoin. Mm. That's his fundamental concept at the moment, or one of the policies that I think he's he's standing on. I yeah, look. It's difficult. I know that's a really difficult it's question. It's very difficult and it's very interesting. And it's yet to be, uh, I mean, obviously it's all yet to be seen. Uh, but certainly what we're seeing at the moment just for El Salvador is that, see, I think this would be the thing. If your currency is increasing in value because it is scarce, then whilst you can't inflate it exponentially for a period of time to create fake growth, you also don't suffer then the collapses and the, you know, the highs and the lows of that extreme volatility that is becoming more extreme and inflation volatility is becoming more extreme as the years go by whether you could remain competitive under those circumstances i don't know it's a matter of whether the value of bitcoin or a stable currency uh, a limited a finite currency increases in value faster than your capacity to print now nothing can outstrip the speed you know the speed at which you can print but then if you print too fast you're back to the weimar republic aren't you so I, I'm curious about that. I mean, if you're seeing the adoption of Bitcoin at the pace we're already seeing it, I mean, 200 million wallet holders over the course of 14 years, bearing in mind that was incredibly small at the beginning and we're still young and we haven't seen the major adoption as yet, if you ended up with something that approximated a Bitcoin standard globally or a parallel system, and the other part of that is that you end up with competitive jurisdictions who want the smart players and who will attract you with lower taxes. And because Bitcoin is international currency, and it's in, and and so I, I don't know if a country's got Bitcoin on its books, and so it's becoming wealthier as we go through the bull market, and it's you know building out its infrastructure and investing that into businesses, and I I don't know if it can't happen equally fast depending on the increase in value. Of Bitcoin over the years, and the speed at which that happens. I guess it's, what it, a, it's a really interesting question. I guess what it really means is that um, you're going to have to come back on the show, and we're going to have to talk about future events as they unfold because there's there's so, <laughs> <laughs> there's so much to discuss. That sounds and, like a mighty fine idea. Yeah, that'd be that'd be wonderful. Tim, should we go to media picks? Do you think? Let's go for it. Let's go for it. Do you want to do you want to kick off? 
I'll, I'll be brief. Um, I've just started watching the 16th season of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> and it's it's as funny as it ever was. You, you, um, you pointed that out to me a while back. It is fantastic. And so it lost its way, I think, at the end of the 15th. But the 16th is, is firing on all cylinders again. It's, it's the funniest show I think I've ever seen via TV. It's on Netflix now. Uh, but it's, what's it's it, brilliant. What's it called? It's Sorry. called it's, it's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Okay. It stars a, a variety of sort of youngish, sort of 30-something, early 40-something American actors. It also stars Danny DeVito. Is it as un-PC in this season as it, oh, it was is, at the beginning? It, it's, it's completely un, unrelenting. I, I so, can't believe that they've managed to keep... I mean, that's so great that they've managed to keep that. So they've got a character called Dee, who's the sort of the blonde, the blonde young thing. And they're always perpetually... They, they own a little bar, a seedy little bar called Paddy's Bar in Philly. And basically, they're all they're all always on the verge of bankruptcy. And in the very first episode, D, D sweet sweet D, I think she's called, is she's being evicted from her flat, so she's glued her hand to the door of the flat, and then of course they take the door off. <laughs> she goes around the rest of the episode with half, half a door on the end of her arm, and they they devise the guys devise some ruse whereby they they get people to rent inflatable furniture for their homes. <laughs> <laughs> and I must say it's all deeply financially unsound and you have Danny DeVito who's like the sort of the the gang the gangland um like slumlord boss who just goes around with a with a gun and I think I think it was in the first episode possibly the second episode he accidentally shoots two of them in the face while they're having dinner <laughs> together it's it's indescribable I mean the the plots the plots barely bear scrutiny but it's it's just the funniest thing I've ever seen Danny it's DeVito, always, how brilliant is he? He's just amazing. So, uh, they got Carla in as well. So there's a bit uh, cameo role by Carla from um, is it Cheers? Yeah. Uh, oh yes. yeah. Yeah. So it's but it's 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 tremendous fun. So if you haven't seen it, you you must give it a shot. Fantastic. So I will. My one is going to be. I may have mentioned this before, and I, I know comedy is very much a personal thing. But um, Carrie, have you heard of Friday Night Dinner? No, I haven't. Okay, oh, I so, think we've got another another one that you'd love. Yeah. So okay. Yeah, it it took me a while to warm to it because it is it is quite odd, but it's I think you'd enjoy it, and that's why I'm recommending it. Friday night dinner is set around a family or, or who always are, are having dinner on a Friday, of course, Jewish family, and uh, there's a, a local character Jim who's completely obsessed with the mother that's always trying to invite himself. And it's very, it's very English humour. It's very funny, and I think it will appeal to two sides. One is obviously your Jewish background, and the other side of it being, you know, having that English element to your your history. I think you'll get the humour. But to be honest, it is. When I first started watching it, the first couple of episodes, I was like, "This is really strange. I'm not getting it." And then all of a sudden, it just became really, really funny. You, you, you have to, you have to sort of get to know the characters, and once you've got to know them, there's a similar format that you feel very comfortable with in every episode. But it is, it's, it is really good. It's, it's excellent stuff. But also very madcap. So, so that's mine. Um, now yours, Carrie, doesn't have to be entertainment. It can be anything in the financial markets as well as, you know, anything that you think is just worth sharing, really. Or really a real oh. stinker. Yeah, something to avoid. <laughs> a real stinker, something yeah. disastrous. Yeah. Look, I haven't, 
I'm just not watching or listening to as much. I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, but a lot of them are very mainstream podcasts like Joe Rogan and, mm. and Ross Brand and Zuby. So we're, couple- we're now going to have to edit this out. We're now going to have to edit all references to Russell Brand. Oh, I've done it myself now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody mentioned Russell Brown. Oh no, I've done it again. <laughs> You're giving me a lot of work, Tim. Thanks. <laughs> I, I'm enjoying. Um, I'm just enjoying The Witcher on uh, on Netflix at the moment. I'm a I'm a fantasy fan from way back, and there hasn't been a good fantasy series for a while. And The Witcher really appeals to me, partially because of um, what's his name, Cavill, Henry Cavill is for the eye candy factor. It's uh-huh. a very beautiful cast. Uh, and uh, but, uh, but I love myself a bit of magic and a few monsters and and, uh, and it's well written and it's nicely put together and it's, yeah, it's a solid show. Did you guys watch, however, did you see Succession? Y- yes, I didn't watch it all, but I watched the first two seasons, I think. Uh, that was the most fabulous thing I've seen of recent times. That's the one I would recommend to anyone who hasn't made their way through all, I think it was four seasons in total, just absolutely rip-roaring, edge of your seat every step of the way. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Don't want to boast, but I, I walked past Brian Cox of Succession in Primrose really? about, about two months ago, and he just sort of patted me on the back and gave me a little smile. So well I didn't done. want to make a, I didn't want to make a fuss about it, so I don't want to boast. So I just I'll keep on the cute on the QT. But uh, you he's said, a lovely. So Brian, stop bothering me for God's sake. Yeah. We're in public. <laughs> Pat following me wherever I go. <laughs> yeah, I saw him on something else where he was uh, doing a bit of a. He actually did a uh, documentary on how the rich live or something and looking or looking at both sides of the world, looking at how the poor and the rich are kind of living it. And and uh, he came across as a very, very down to earth fellow. Excellent. He was also he was also in a, a comedy series. I'm just trying to remember set in um, set in, in Scotland. Um, and I'm just seeing if I can very quickly find it now. Um, Scotland TV TV show. What while you doing... has a, He has a burger van. It's called Bob Servant. If you fancy an, another treat, um, then just check out Bob okay. Servant. Gosh, I've they... taken notes left, right, and centre here. I've got three notes. Yeah, you'll have to listen I'm back to the pod. BBC Scotland, but it's an absolute treat, Carrie. So, and uh, the perfect accompaniment to Saturday, a Friday night dinner. Do, do you, are you Beautiful. Into, are you into comic book stuff as well as the fantasy stuff? A little bit, a little yeah. bit. Like uh, my my, I've got a fifteen year old boy, and mm. we've been not only heavily into comics over the years, and and the comic movies like the the Marvel and DC movies that mm. come from that, but he's also deeply into Lego, and so he's got a lot of the minifigures of the um there i mean he's more into the star wars minifigures at the moment but mm. he's been deeply into the uh marvel and dc um comic franchises why do you ask because uh very interestingly my daughter's 16 and she and my son's 12 and they they were into the the marvel universe and then it went completely woke and off off the rails um, which I thought was, and they they didn't like it at all as to where it went, and they they totally ruined it, which I thought was a, a big shame. They got rid of Iron Man for God's sake! What the hell did they do that for? What? Yeah, and so um, 
So if you go to um, so something is this, that's is this animated or is this the comic strip books or no, what no, are you? No, I'm well. I'm talking about the the the, the films. So so oh, the, the films. The, yeah. So there's been a. Did a, they get rid of Iron Man? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's been so there's been a paucity of of the 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 the, the, the genre's kind of lost its way a little bit, and what's kind of brought it back on track is something that my daughter brought to my attention, which is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, which is uh, a live-action comic. Yeah, it's yeah. a live-action comic. And uh, I think you can get it on Netflix. The story is brilliant. They've actually gone back and they've worked out, you know what, guys, you know where we've gone wrong. You can do all the superhero stuff, but you've got to have a good story. And yeah. nothing works without a good story. And the bo both of them, are. I haven't seen the second one, but there's two installments. And I would never find myself yes. watching this stuff, but on my daughter's recommendation, I watched Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, and it was brilliant. I thought it was really good because the story was so good. So, well, I, my I, son's also obsessed with those two, and he loved the second one even more than the first. Exactly what and my daughter I said. Exactly what uh, she yeah, said. Yeah, and I tried to watch the first, and it got such great reviews, mm. and I couldn't make myself watch it. I just found it all too – I just found the style of animation and the brightness and the bright lights and the quick, and the speed of it, and I just felt like I was going to have an epileptic fit. It oh. just did not – I found it really grating. But I think I find animation these days – I've watched so much of it over the years with my son that I've just about had it up to here, and, and I, I kind of struggled with it. and. I should give it another go for his sake, but I'm um, I'm a little un unenthusiastic. Well, I thought if you don't like it, he would, but he's obviously already there. So that I thought it was a very interesting sort of bright light for the writers who've gone just too woke, and that's another that's another subject that we we can perhaps take on board at another podcast. But just to yeah, say, absolutely, the MCU. Um, the 22 series movies, they didn't go woke, I don't think, at any, did they? Well, I don't remember them going woke. I mean, you had Warunda what, or whatever she, it was called. She-Hulk? I mean, it was just awful. Oh, no. See, none of that was in the, that 22 movie series, so there must be new stuff that's it's, happened. The new stuff is where it's all gone wrong. It's just all, yeah. and even the original Wakanda stuff, that was brilliant, and then the next one was crap. And it's – so, anyway – um, yeah. they, they it's mission creep because they're doing it over things like My Little Mermaid now, aren't they? The the problem has been that there's been sign off on things just for box ticking, not thinking about the the end result has got to always be a good story. And we we spoke about it before in terms of media, the way Top Gun traditional film, um, you know, hero, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you know, fairly standard story. But it just resonated with everyone and made a billion dollars in its way. Thank you very much. So just just showed that that that's the, that's kind of what people want. They 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 want good stories. You know, e even if you're saying that it, it doesn't represent society, well, who goes to the cinema to represent reality? You you want if you want sex and violence, you can have that at home. <laughs> <laughs> but you want escapism that's the point isn't exactly, it exactly. and people are fed up with being lectured at and yes. having you know political messages shoved down their throat and exactly. when they go to the sports stadium or when they go to the movies it's like i just want to relax for a minute enough yeah. Yeah. stop with this yeah. rubbish i just i don't want everything to be politicized and and uh, you know it's just exhausting exactly but this too this too shall pass
In, indeed. <laughs> indeed. Indeed it will. Indeed. And, and so, um, Carrie, do you want to tell us where we can find you? What, what handles, if people wanted to listen to your podcast or follow you on social media, how, how would they do that? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm on Twitter is probably the main social media at Carrie C, and the uh, and my podcast again most commonly found on YouTube though I'm across all the platforms, and it's called Bitcoin People or Bitcoin People with Carrie C, but Bitcoin People, and you'll find a whole lot of fabulous podcasts about Bitcoin there, looking at it from every angle, from the human rights to the Austrian economics to the technology and the privacy and so on and so forth. So uh, would love to see you over there, anyone who might be listening. Fantastic. Well, it's amazing that you and Tim connected. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And we look forward to having you back. Thank you so much for the opportunity. A pleasure to meet you both. Be well. Cheers, Carrie. Cheers. All the best. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Take Thank care. Ciao, ciao. Thanks, everybody. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.